While some of you are still sleeping, they're here Sunday mornings and they're rehearsing, getting ready for today, every week. By the way, if you haven't downloaded our Alexio app for Woodland Church, then be sure you go and you download that. Um, I don't know what it's called on um, an Android phone, but go to the App Store and it's a free download, but you'll enjoy having that. We're starting a new series today called God Friended Me. And the idea for this series title is, of course, off of the new television series that's out. And I was kind of stunned when I began to get calls when people saw the uh, series of messages I was going to be preaching. And then some of you have stopped me here at church and asked me, have I watched the show? And I've watched a few episodes of this television show. But when I first saw it, I told Becky, what a great title for sermon series that I was already planning on preaching about Jesus being our friend. And when I watched the episode, there's this young man that's an atheist, who by the way, that actor, I've been reading up on each of the actors in that show, he uh, professes a strong faith in Jesus Christ, and so I'm interested to see how the show will progress, but he gets these text messages from God. And of course, they don't believe it's God, and I don't know how the plot line of this will work out. But it's so like Jesus in that he's always helping somebody that's in need of help. He and his friends are helping them. And when I watch the show and, and I look at the scripture, I just began thinking about how God friended us. I thought about our Christmas Eve service here, and what a wonderful, wonderful evening that was. And I looked out, I always pray this because I, I just know it's true. And I looked out over the congregation that night. I know there are widows here, widowers here, that don't have family with them this Christmas. And it's a lonely time. So we're, make sure, we kind of strategize, be sure you love and go and welcome, invite them to your home. There were people that I wasn't sure about. I was inviting to our home after Christmas Eve. Oh, pastor, somebody's already invited us in. There were guests here that I know in the community spending Christmas alone. There was one couple that were here for our Christmas Eve service that I invited, and she bought someone with her that was crippled and also far from the Lord. And he came to me after the service and a total stranger just put his arms around me and hugged me real big and says, thank you, thank you for doing this. I said, we do this every week. You know, we just, we do this all the time. You know, no need to thank us. Oh no, thank you. And so I want to thank you for the love and the friendship that you were showing to other people. Jesus was slandered a lot. You know that, you've read your New Testaments. And if you haven't read it, you ought to read it because those first four biographies of Jesus that we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you know, a lot of people know about God, and actually a lot of people think they know a lot about God, but then when they discover Jesus, they realize they really didn't know that much about God to begin with. They believe there's a God, but they just didn't know who He was. At Christmas, we celebrated the fact that God came to save us. Jesus came to save us. Matter of fact, the angel says, for he will save his people from their sins. And I'm so grateful for that. 
His name, Jesus, means Savior. He's come to save us. So every time I say the name of Jesus, I'm reminded of what he did. Friendships are vital. I need friendships. You need friendships. I'm very blessed. I'm extremely blessed with friends. I, if you just knew the whole story of my life, I didn't have friends growing up. My cousins were very loving and friendly and supportive. I couldn't do much with them because of being sick. And I'm so thankful that my dad persuaded me to go to a public school, but when you have colostomies and you're wearing bags and there's all kinds of odors and sounds that were associated with that then that is not now, you know, there wasn't friends. And so I just didn't know the value of friendship. There was one guy that really befriended me, and I'll never forget Steve for as long as I live because he just had so much compassion. And he would tell me it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I can remember, and I don't mean to be gross, but I just, I want you to feel what I'm trying to say to you, how much friendship matters to me. I can remember having to walk out of classes when that colostomy bag would overflow with bowels just running down my legs. And the names that were being called out, teachers trying to settle classes down. So I can tell you, when I tell you friendship matters to me, you have no clue what it matters to me. But in preparing for this series, to realize that there are so many people who feel like they don't have a friend, they don't have a close friend, someone they can confide in. And I've discovered over the years, and you've discovered over the years, and, and I don't mean to go negative here, but just as much power as friends have to encourage you, friends have the power to hurt you in ways that you've never imagined. When they betray that friendship, when they betray confidences, people who act like you're, they're your friend, and then later you find out they weren't your friend at all, they were just using you. When I went into a certain ministry that I was doing for a number of years, which gave me exposure that I would have never had probably prior to that, part of my orientation was you need to understand there are going to be people who want to be your friend that aren't really wanting to be your friend. They just want to be close to you because of who you're close to. So you always need to be very careful. When I worked in mental health, I discovered how important friendships were. Because oftentimes, the betrayal of a friend or a family member could send someone who was already weak emotionally, someone who wasn't that they were Looney Tunes, they just had thinking problems. And one out of every four people are mentally ill. That means there is a thinking problem. So a quarter of us are sick in here this morning. Look at your neighbor and say, it's not me, so it must be you. <laughs> you know? There's four of us at home. I can tell you who the crazy one is. I look at his face every morning when I'm shaving. And I've seen people just go over the edge because of betrayal of friendship. Jesus was, put that first scripture up there if you would, Adam. Jesus, 
he got slandered one time. He says, the Son of Man, on the other hand, feasts and drinks, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard. Read this with me. And a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. Now, they didn't mean that nice. They were really jealous of his success. They slandered. Just leave that up for a moment, Adam. They slandered Jesus at every opportunity they could get. They said he was demon-possessed, the religious leaders of the day. They said that he was trying to incite a rebellion against the government. They said he wasn't clean. They called, they said his parents weren't married. They, all kinds of horrible things because they were simply jealous of Jesus' success. But the worst thing they could say about Jesus was that he was a friend of sinners. And I can't tell you, even in my dreams, and it happened this last week, sometimes some of those names that I was called or things that were said, they come back in the nighttime. They come back and you wake up. And some of you know what I'm talking about. You've been hurt. You've been healed, but you've been hurt. But the memory of that rises up. And you can feel the tears on the side of your face and you one more time give that to the Lord. When I gave my heart to Jesus, I was bitter, bitter, bitter. But I remember I just came in alone, knelt down, and I gave my heart to Jesus. And this was my very first prayer request after giving my heart to Jesus, my very first prayer request. And this is when I learned God answers prayer. And if you don't know that, I want you to know that this morning. God answers prayer. I didn't have friends. And I said, Jesus, I need friends. People that will help me learn how to live for you. And the very next day at Willingham High School in Macon, Georgia, three young men walked up to me, all separate from each other. First one was Steve Hood. He walked up and invited me to a Bible class, the new Bible class that was starting on our campus. Steve became one of my best friends, became a Nazarene pastor. The next one was Tommy Hudgens. Tommy and I still stay in touch with each other. And Tommy came up and befriended me. He played the trumpet, I played the drums. We became the best of friends, went places together, double dated together. Next friend that came up was probably the goofiest, wackiest, funniest guy. Everybody loved Gordon. Gordon came up to me and says, hey, we're starting a new Bible club on campus. Gordon became a really good friend. I came home from school that day just totally blown away. Jesus had given me friends, and I learned something about Jesus then that I didn't know in those growing up years. I knew he was almighty. I knew he was God. I couldn't understand why my life was the way it was, but I knew then that Jesus was all about being a friend to us. You see, when they slandered Jesus, Jesus took that as a mark of success. To call him the friend of sinners, that didn't offend him. That was the mark of his success. That defined his mission. That said who he was. So if you would this morning, I want you to stand with me one more time, and I want us to pray together.
Jesus, I ask you this morning that you would help us to really grasp hold of this so that when we leave this church today, we take your very presence with us, not because we're good people, but because you're a good, good God. And that everyone that we come in contact with, Lord, will suddenly find themselves thirsting for that mysterious presence of who they cannot see that abides with us always, Jesus. I'm asking you, Lord, to touch us and that Woodland will be known as a friend in the community, as a friend at every plant, as a friend in every office and every high school. Lord Jesus, I'm asking you to manifest yourself through this congregation and help us to see you this morning is how you want us to see you. You're our friend. For it's in Jesus' holy name I pray. And everyone said, Amen and amen and amen. God bless you. You can be seated this morning. You see, that phrase, friend of sinners, was such a shock to me because I could believe that Jesus was the judge of sinners. I could even believe that Jesus somehow or another came to save sinners like myself. I could believe that he was the God of sinners, but why would Jesus want to be a friend to someone like myself? When I think about it, even to this day, I'm still wild and overwhelmed by it, that Jesus is my friend. And when I say he's my friend, it doesn't take away anything from his power, from his holiness, from who he is. But I think what I want to communicate this morning, what I believe the Holy Spirit wants us all to know, is that sometimes there are your friends that aren't Christians yet, your friends that maybe you do life with on the block parties in your neighborhoods or whatever it is, your friends often think that somehow or another Jesus came to start a holy club, a holy club where people that were, as some call us, born-againers, or some people would say about us, do-gooders, that, that this holy club was just for certain people, and he called this holy club the church. And they don't realize that it's not a holy club that Jesus started. Jesus came to people like you and me who were lost in our sins and our trespasses, and he met us right where we were at, and he chose to save us. And the more that I contemplate that, I realize how many people have made our faith more about rules than they have about a relationship with God. We like rules. We like making rules. We like keeping rules. Some of us are like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus and says, what good thing must I do to be saved? Because we're good people. We're good human beings. We want to save ourselves. So what good thing must I do to be saved? And when all in all, we need to understand there's nothing, not one thing that we can do to save ourselves. There's not one little thing we can add to what Christ has done for us at Calvary that will make us any more righteous or make us any more saved or any more loved than what we already are in Jesus Christ right now. And Jesus came to us in that relationship not as judge, but as the friend. And the reason that Jesus calls me his friend, again, is not because I could do anything about it. It's just because of who Jesus is. 
And that's one of the things that I want you to get this morning, that the reason that Jesus calls me friend, the reason he calls Dennis Clanton his friend is not because I'm a good guy or I'm a good pastor or, any, or a good husband or a good father. It's because of who Christ is. It's his nature to befriend us and to love us. From the very beginning when Adam and Eve sinned against God in the Garden of Eden, he prophesied our salvation. We've talked about that so much. When the seed of the woman, Christ, would crush the head of the serpent, it's all because of who he is. One of my favorite songs is a song that goes way back to the 70s when I didn't have any gray hair and I didn't have any wrinkles. And the archers used to sing a song called, it's not because of what I've done, but it's because of who he is and whose I am. And that song still resonates in my spirit because of what Jesus did. A friendship I've learned has to be built. You don't just automatically enter into a friendship. This year, somebody befriended me because of someone in our church. This year, someone befriended me because someone in our community networked me with them and says, I think you would like meeting Pastor Clanton from Woodland Church, and so arranged a lunch and then kind of stepped out of the way, and we've been building a friendship together. I went home for Christmas, and someone in our congregation knows someone in Macon, Georgia, and so he's connected us, and so while I was home, we got together and found myself, I really like this man, and I was like, we, we want to do life, we want to get together again. So we agreed that when Becky and I return back to Macon to visit after her tax season is over, we'll get together for dinner one night, and we'll go out to a restaurant, and, and we'll work on building this friendship. And the cool thing is, well, there's already been messages exchanged, because friendships aren't mathematical formulas. Friendships have to be built. And it's one of the things that I discovered, these three young men, Tommy and Gordon that I, and Steve that I was talking to you about, they worked at building a friendship with me. Friendship is something that means that we have to reciprocate one another. There is a, if I can put it this way, it sounds like a rule. I don't mean it to be a rule, but there's a relational responsibility that we have to one another. I mean, there is a relationship and to build a friendship means that I'm not, I just don't call you all the time, or I just don't send you an email all the time, or I just don't take you out to lunch, or I just don't buy you lunch all the time, but in turn, you take me out, or you call me, or you email me, or you say, hey, let's go golfing together. And by the way, isn't it the most spectacular winter that we have had in 20 years? Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for this? Hallelujah. You know, I'm going to get hate mail, but it'll all go to Norma anyway. If this is global warming, baby, bring it on, okay? I have just enjoyed. We haven't had to have our parking lot plowed one time. That had nothing to do with the message, so I'll get back on track here. But this whole deal of friendship, there's a relational responsibility that we have to each other if we want to build relationships. But good friendships then develop into communication that leads to communion. So when there's good communication, then there's communion together. And I'm not a touchy-feely guy, and so I've tried to think about how to describe this word communion. When I use the word communion, I'm typically thinking about what we'll do next Sunday here at Woodland. We'll take the Lord's Supper together. We call that communion. But the more I've thought about that over the years and tried to put a definition with this word communion, I realized, boy, 
Jesus was doing a whole lot more than giving us some bread and the cup to share together. He was saying that we were one with him. He prayed this prayer. He says, Father, I pray that you will come and abide in them, and I abide in them, and them in us. You see, good, communi- good communication leads to this blending of our souls together. Jesus lives in you if you've invited him into your heart. If you believe that, say a big amen this morning. You can't separate me from Jesus. Nothing can take me out of the hands of God. Nothing can take you out of the hands of God. And yet, friendships can grow distant if they're not nurtured and if we don't take the relational responsibilities. There are friends that I have that call me every single week, and they say, I know you can't make the call, so I'm going to call you every single, and I'm so grateful for them. And they'll, they'll call, and maybe it's just a three or four, sometimes five minutes at the max call that we'll have. But just the fact that they're calling and they're thinking about me, there are people that call you like that, I hope. They're leading communion. But here's the deal. With my friends, I know what to talk about. With my friends, I know what we like to do together. With my friends, I know what we like to eat together. With my friends, I know what we like to to watch on television together. And so we'll talk about the football games. And speaking about football games, pray for your pastor. I've had a bitter, bitter soul since the Sugar Bowl I had people in this congregation like Norma, who normally is as sweet as sugar. Norma, who's always encouraging, sends me this sarcastic, snarky message from Texas about Georgia getting beat. I had a man after prayer last night come up and say, Pastor, what a powerful prayer you prayed tonight. What a beautiful prayer. I received that prayer, but Pastor, you should have prayed that in the Georgia locker room. (laughs) Jerk. I lost all of the things that happened good in that moment. It's friendships. It's what we do. We know what to talk about and how to love one another. But God, God is beyond my understanding. Look at what the Bible says, Psalms 145 and verse 3. The Lord is great and worthy of our praise. No one can understand how great he is. One translation says he is beyond our understanding. I mean, in other words, God is so big. God is so powerful. God is so wonderful. Who could ever understand him? Look at Psalm, excuse me, Romans chapter 11 and verse 33. Oh, how great are God's riches and wisdom and knowledge. How impossible it is for us to understand his decisions and his ways. Who can know the Lord's thoughts? Who knows enough to give him advice? Who has given him so much that he needs to pay it back? For everything comes from him and exists by his power and is intended for his glory. All glory to him forever. And you might read those verses and go, oh, they, if he's beyond understanding, if he's all this, how could I ever hope to be a friend of God? How could we ever sing that chorus that I love to sing here at Woodland, I am a friend of God? How could you ever even hope to believe what the series title is, God Friended Me? You see, what happened when I prayed that prayer when I was only 16 years old, God Give me a friend. Two things happened. First of all, God never gave up on me in my bitterness. The night before, my sister and I, who were very close, Kim, we talked two or three times a week. I had snapped off at her because there was just so much bitterness and anger building up inside. And I went in, and the Lord just dealt with me, and I knew 
what was happening to me was poisonous. I didn't know how to deal with it. Just didn't know how to deal with it. But when I went in and I surrendered my life to Christ, I don't know how to explain this to you. Again, I'm not a touchy-feely guy. I can tell you theologically. I can give you the terms. That's not what you want to hear and not what you necessarily need to focus upon. I can just tell you that what happened on my knees that night using words that still don't make sense to me is my heart melted and that bitterness flowed out, that anger flowed out. And somehow or another, a contentment came that I knew that God had had a plan for my life. You're not told over and over you're going to die. You're not told over and over you're not going to be able to do this. You're not going to be able to do that. You're not told over and over that the fevers have affected your brain and you'll never be able to think properly. You're not told those things without becoming very bitter. But something miraculously happened when I gave my heart to Jesus. He not only touched and healed me of my sin, he healed my emotions, and he healed my, my thinking. And today I stand here before you all because of what God has done. And he answered my prayer and he sent me a friend. God initiated friendship with me. God initiated three friends coming to become three of my best friends that are still friends today, except for one of them. They're already in heaven. You see, God is the one that initiates friendship. And this relationship, God is the initiator. And you ought to write that in the side of your outline. God is the initiator. I just ran out of room to give you everything I wanted to do. So how does God initiate friendship? God initiates friendship with us in three ways. First of all, he does it through creation. Creation reveals who God is. The Bible says in Psalms 19, the heavens proclaim the glory of God and the skies declare his craftsmanship. Day after day, they continue to speak and night after night, they make him known. In other words, one translation says that day after day, they preach. Another translation says day after day, they declare. You Every single day, creation is revealing to us that there is a God. You look up into the heavens. You, you look at the world around us. And friends, you can't help but know that this is not some cosmic accident that just happened. There's an order. There's an immensity. There's a power. There's an intelligent design that's behind all of this. And his name is Jesus that created this world that we live in. And yet, just looking at it, it doesn't have the power to transform us. Look at this next passage, if you would, Romans 1.20. By taking a long and thoughtful look at what God has created, people have always been able to see what their eyes as such can't see. Now, stop. Hard stop right there. Look at what he's saying. People have always been able to see what their eyes as such can't see. It's hard stop. God is telling you that when you look at creation, if you will think creation is showing you things that you cannot see with a microscope or a telescope, even with the Hubble telescope, God is saying you're going to be able to see what is invisible. You're going to be able to see his eternal power, for instance, and the mystery of his divine being. So nobody has a good excuse. You look at that and you go, yes, there's someone out there who created all of this. No atheist will be able to stand before God and say, God, I didn't know, because God will say to them, day after day, I declared my glory to you. No agnostic will be able to say, I didn't know. God will say, day after day, the heavens declared, you knew someone's out there, but you never bothered to seek me out. 
One of my favorite testimonies is the story of Dr. Paul Youngie Cho, the pastor of the largest church in the world, and how he came to faith just by looking at creation and seeing all that was out there. And I met Dr. Cho. I told you the story of how shoved him into a broom closet at the Sheraton Biltmore in Atlanta out of his security detail because he had shared some things that I needed to know more about, and I would never get this opportunity again. He still remembers me. He still tells the story about the crazy preacher in Georgia that pushed him into a broom closet and locked the door on him. But I asked him, he helped me to understand so many things about God and about prayer. Here's what I want you to know. No one will be, ever be able to say, I didn't know there was a God. There is a God. And you can know a lot about God just by looking at creation. But it won't transform you, but you can know a lot about God. Let me illustrate that. Put the first image up there for me, if you would, Adam. How many of you know who, who sculpted this sculpture of Moses? Michelangelo. Yeah, you're very smart. You're much smarter than I am. Now, before I go any further, I am not an artist. I am married to a woman who loves art. She has taught Grasshopper a lot right here. So... We've actually seen this statue. We've actually been there. And so looking at this statue, that's Michelangelo. You knew that. Just by looking at that, you go, Michelangelo. Next slide, please. Who painted that? A lot more of you know about Picasso. So just by looking at it, you know who painted that. Next slide, please. Who, paint, who drew that? Everybody knows about Peanuts and Charles Schultz. Now, go back, if you would, for just a moment to Michelangelo's slide. When you look at Moses, you can see, you can learn something about Michelangelo. You can learn about his love of the human body. You can learn of his love for God and his word. You can also learn that he's into realism. He wants things to look as real as possible. Next slide, please. When you look at a Picasso, you see the problems that Picasso had with reality and with relationships and how that everything he paints is distorted. And I read an interesting study on what Picasso was trying to communicate. And, and though I don't particularly enjoy his paintings, and that's nothing to be, you know, proud of, I don't get Jackson Pollock either, you know. It's just that when I read what he was trying to communicate, then I understood. And look at the next slide. And when you look at, at the Peanuts and you read those cartoon strips, you know a lot about Charles Schultz. But here's what I want you to know. When you saw the statue of Moses or the sculpture of Moses, you knew that Michelangelo had done it. When you saw the Picasso, you knew that Picasso had painted that. When you saw Charlie Brown, you knew that that uh, Charles Schultz had painted that. When you look into the heavens day after day, they're declaring that there is a God. And I'm here to declare to you that he cares about you and wants to be your friend. Can we give him a hand of praise for that this morning? <laughs> Hallelujah. Second way that God initiates friendship with us is through Jesus. God came in Christ so we would know what he was like. You see, when Jesus came... He was God in the flesh. At Christmas, and let me go back again to the Christmas Eve service and all of our Christmas services, we, we celebrated that God came in the flesh. He tabernacled. He made his tent. He made his home. He lived among us. And, and we know what God is like. He's not some distant God. He's not some God that you can't touch. 
He's not like a lot of religious leaders who live in an ivory tower or travel with a big security detail. He's not like a lot of religious leaders that unless you do things the way that they say you should do it, you know, you lop off their heads or you execute them. He's not like some religious leaders that says, serve me or or we're going to put you in prison is, is happening in our world today. He's not like other religious leaders that are just emaciating themselves and saying, you know, the thing you've got to do is deny every good thing to your body you don't want to eat, you, you don't want to have sex with your wife or your husband, you, you just want to, you know, the, the closer you can get to nothingness, the closer you are to God. No, Jesus came. And the Bible says he ate with us and he fellowshiped with us. And here's the good news. Jesus went out and touched people that were previously untouchable, people that other folks couldn't touch and wouldn't touch because of their diseases. People that other folks wanted to execute because of their sins. He went out to the poor and he fed them. He went out to those that were outcasts and he welcomed them. He went to those that no one else would go to and he brought them into the kingdom. Jesus was showing you that God is not some lofty person locked away that says, I don't like you. Jesus loves us. It's why we sing that song with our children. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. And the greatest theological hymn you'll ever sing is Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Can we give him a hand of praise? It's why he came. So we could know what God is like. God's initiating friendship. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart, and he has revealed God to us. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, long ago, long ago, God spoke many times in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he's spoken to us through his Son. God promised everything to the Son as an inheritance, and through the Son, He created the universe. One day, look at me, and those that are listening on the web, one day, every one of us, every one of us, atheist, agnostic, and friend of God, we will stand before the Lord. One day we'll be there. And I want more than anything else to hear those words, welcome. Welcome, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And Jesus came to make that possible. He came because I couldn't go to him. He came because I could never be good enough. He came because he loved us. The third way God initiates friendships is he gave us the Bible. We weren't there. How did Michelangelo know about the Ten Commandments? He wasn't there. How do we know how, in, our, in, our, in, our, in the House of Representatives where the, the face of Moses looks right down at the speaker's podium every time the speaker of the House, every time the president stands there to give his State of the Union address, when they're standing there, they're looking right at the face. Of, how do they know? How do we know what Jesus did? Because God gave us the official record of his work among people like you and me, and it's called the Bible. 
And the Bible is sharper than any two-edged sword. There is so many of us that know how just reading the Word, it cut right to the core of the issue in our lives. How just reading the Word from time to time, it met a need in our lives. I told you just a few moments ago what a blessing it was for me this year to read in my devotions about how our children would adorn the palaces of the Lord. And I, I just knelt to give God thanks for His saving work and for showing the friendship. But can I tell you a little more about that? What I knelt, and it's in my journal, you can read it, I gave God thanks for you because on Eisenhower Parkway, when I knew the Lord was calling us back into the pastorate over 20 years ago, I said, Lord, send us to a church where my children will grow up knowing they're loved, knowing that they're cared for, my wife will be able to live knowing that they're cared and loved for, that people will be able to show the love of God and not so much of the garbage that I've heard that's come out of churches. And you have befriended them and you have loved them and therefore there's this great love for God. Jesus didn't come to create a holy club. He came so that we could be his friend and now his presence is manifested in us so the world can know God wants to befriend them as well. Can we give him another hand of praise? So you have your Bible not to thump it over somebody's head but you have your Bible to open somebody's heart. And if we will talk to our friends about Jesus, it's amazing how many of them will respond. Jesus performed the book in John, the very last, very last of the four Gospels, in the end of his biography. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What? What other things are written? I mean, think about it. You remember the story Jarius comes to Jesus and says, my daughter's dying, please come and heal her. I mean, this was a big step for this rabbi to take. Please come. He's a synagogue leader. Come heal her. And so they're rushing Jesus to the house because they want Jesus there to pray for her. And, and this woman comes out of the crowd. She's got an issue of blood that makes her unclean. She could have been stoned herself. But then she reaches out. She says, if I can just touch his garment, if I can just touch him. And she reached out and touched Jesus. And instantly, healing power flowed from Christ right into her life. It wasn't about her uncleanliness. It wasn't about her disease. It was about God's amazing love for her. And she was restored. And Jesus called her out. Jesus called her out of the crowd, not because Jesus wanted to shame her. Jesus wanted her to know he wanted to be her friend. And so timidly, she stepped forward and said, it's I, knowing that she could have been assaulted because of what she'd done. Jairus is going, Jesus, she's a nobody. Jesus, she's unclean. It's my daughter, Jesus. Come heal my daughter. And Jesus says, Jarius, be cool, man. I'm coming to your house. Just be cool. But right now, I've got to show this woman how much she matters to God. And part of the reason you came to Woodland Church today is God wants you to know how much you matter to him. And we still tell her story, and yet there are things that are not even written down that Jesus did. Jesus got to Jairus' house. They said, don't bother him. He's dead. She's dead. You know, there's no more hope. When there is no more hope, there is always Jesus. When there is no more hope, 
there is always Jesus. When there is no more hope, you've got a friend that will always remain. When there is no more hope, you've got a friend that can turn the water into wine. You've got a friend that can multiply the loaves. You've got a friend that can raise the dead. And Jesus went in there and they mocked Jesus. They laughed at Jesus just like those Pharisees did. And Jesus said, out of here, out of here. Some of you have got some friends you need to say, get out of here because they are diminishing your faith rather than increasing your faith. And Jesus goes in, prays for the little girl. She's healed and she rises up because when you've got Jesus, there is always hope. Somebody give him a hand of praise this morning. When you have Jesus, there's always hope. Let me wrap this up by telling you one of my favorite stories in the Bible. Matthew 9. I talk about Matthew a lot. I, one of the best stories. Next week I'm going to talk about Zacchaeus. But I talk about Matthew a lot, especially to my unsaved friends. Jesus was walking along and he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Now, Matthew wasn't his Hebrew name. If you've ever read the Bible, you've read Levi, who was called Matthew. I'll get to that in a moment. Levi was his Hebrew name. So maybe you wonder why has he got two names. He saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. And later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, They ask his disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. Now, he's not talking about sick people like Jairus' daughter or like the woman with the issue of blood. He says, then he added, now go. Learn the meaning of the scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifices. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous. Does anybody in here know any self-righteous people? Go ahead, put your hand up. You know some self-righteous people? Maybe you're sitting next to one. Maybe you're married to one. Don't lift your hand. Maybe you're married to one. (laughs) You know, we all know they stink, and they're the only ones that don't know they stink. Always telling you how good they are. I sat with a man on a plane one time who was telling me what a blessing he was to his church. <laughs> he said, oh, yeah, he's just such a blessing. When he found out, I, was, I never tell people I'm a pastor when I'm traveling. I'm a motivational speaker. <laughs> and uh, they asked what I was doing. I'll tell them about Jesus and what he's done. I'll tell them some of my story. It's been great, but I never tell my pastor because you meet some of the most self-righteous people in the air. And I said, well, what's the vision of your church? He didn't know. I says, well, what's the strong point of your pastor? He didn't know, but he knew how good he was. You see, I've not come to call those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. You see, Matthew, he changed his name from Levi to Matthew because he became a tax collector. And by becoming a tax collector, he could shake people down. The Roman government was an occupying power. He was a traitor. He was a traitor to his own people. He was a traitor to God. I mean, you got to get this. Matthew was a thug. I mean, imagine if we suddenly were conquered by Russia or China and your neighbor sold out to the enemy 
and he's shaking you down for taxes, for everything you can get. The government says, we don't care how much you get, just as long as you get our share. Your share is for how much more you can shake them down for. That's what Matthew did. That's the reason tax collectors were so despised. And he would report to the government everything you were doing. He would report to the government the conversation. When you had talked about the fact that you, you didn't like the Chinese, or you didn't like this, or you didn't like that, he reported that. And all of a sudden, this guy's your neighbor. And all of a sudden, he's got this security detail. And Jesus, you see, Jesus, again, he was walking among people. He wasn't isolating himself. But there was something so powerful about Jesus' presence that he sees Matthew, and he goes, he doesn't call him Levi. He goes the name that he calls himself. He's Matthew, come follow me. And something was so compelling. Something was so magnetic. Something was so powerful about the presence of Jesus. Jesus didn't tell him to repent. Jesus didn't tell him, you filthy tax collector. Jesus didn't reveal his sins to everybody. Jesus didn't dress him down. He just says, Matthew, dude, come walk with me. Come follow me. And walking with Jesus totally changed Matthew's life. And I'm here to tell you, God comes and meets you right where you're at. He finds me where I am. He found me in my bitterness. He found me in my anger. And he doesn't say, Denny, clean up your act. He doesn't say, Denny, get better. He doesn't say, Denny, do this and do that. Jesus finds you where you're at, and he says, follow me. And the more you walk with Jesus, the more you talk with Jesus, the more like Jesus you become. And if you have been walking with Jesus and talking with Jesus and loving like Jesus, when people see you, they see Jesus Christ. Can we give him a hand of praise this morning? A few years ago, I shared with you how somebody swore in front of me and how pleased I was with that. One of the members of our church who's now a board member says, Wow, if you like people to cuss at you, I'll cuss at you every week. I would never reveal who that was. <laughs> I'm dying to. You see, I'm sure Matthew's mouth was pretty salty when he started following Jesus. I'm sure he had some habits that had to be changed. But you see, Jesus comes not to condemn us. Everybody knows John 3.16, but John 3.17, for he came not to contemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. Not to condemn. I don't know why so many of my brothers and sisters in Christ, and I mean that sincerely, see there's their business to condemn. Casting Crowns has a wonderful song that will be sung during this series, Jesus, Friend of Sinners. And the lead singer sings, so many people have tripped over me trying to get to Jesus. I pray for myself and for you that none of us will be stumbling blocks to people getting to know Jesus. For Jesus came to heal me from the sin that makes me sick. You see, the source of all of the world's problems, all of the world's problems, it's the sin inside of each and every one of us. It's the sin that even as Christians we wrestle against to this day. And you will struggle 
You will sin less and less, but you will still struggle until the day Jesus takes you home. It's why Jesus says healthy people don't need a doctor, sick people do. It's why I preach the cross, central and foremost, especially in our Sunday services. I deliberately kept it plain and simple. First, Jesus and who he is. Then Jesus and what he did. Jesus crucified. And if you ever wondered, do I have a cross fetish? What is it that you're always walking over here to this cross? I want you to understand. I want to gain a deeper understanding of myself. It is not what I do. It's not what I've done. It's all because of what Jesus has done. And if Paul says the preaching of the cross was central and foremost for him, if it was good for the Apostle Paul, it's good for you and me as well. Can we give him another hand of praise this morning? Now, in case, is Becky, if you'll come on up, sweetheart, in case you think, well, gosh, are you saying we can live any way we want to? No, 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 no. But I'm saying you can come to Jesus any way you are. You see, I grew up thinking that I had to be holy to be acceptable. Holiness is the result of salvation, not the road to salvation. Holiness is what happens to us. You say, Pastor, what is holiness? I mean, just give me a definition of holiness. I'll give you what the Word says. It's love, it's peace, it's kindness, it's joy, it's self-control. I could go on with that. It's, technically, it means to be set apart. So when God saves us, He sets us apart to Himself, and the Holy Spirit begins to work through us. Now, some people will resist that grace. That's what the book of Hebrews is all about. And they'll trample the blood of Jesus through self-righteousness. And that's what Paul's dealing with. I believe Paul wrote Hebrews. It doesn't say for sure in the Scriptures, but it sounds a lot like Paul to me. He wrote Hebrews because people were trying to add more rules again. And they trampled. Some people just became apostate and walked away. Here... And I, I really, really, I want to get real practical here for a moment. God will find you. Look at me. Everybody looking. Everybody. God will find you. And God will save you. But oftentimes people lose God. Not because God lost them. But because they walked away from God. You see, there's a relational responsibility to build good communication through prayer, through reading the Word, through worship together like this in our small groups, through communion. That's all a part of growing in grace. God will never leave you. God will never forsake you. God will never abandon you. There may be times, I've had these times, there may be times when God feels so distant from you. But all God's doing is helping you grow, helping your roots to get deep in Him. That's called faith, where you trust God when all the, like Jarius, all the circumstances says your daughter's dead. Don't bother the teacher anymore. They laughed at Jesus. Jesus is out of here. That's not what we say to lost people. That's what we say to self-righteous religious people who want to diminish our faith. People who say God doesn't heal today. God doesn't save today. God doesn't transform lives today. 
people who want to put God in a box. People like the Pharisees who call him the friend of sinners. This is what the Lord says. Don't let the wise <coughs> boast in their wisdom. Or the powerful boast in their power. Or the rich boast in their riches. But those who wish to boast should boast in this alone. They truly know me and understand that I am the Lord who demonstrates unfailing love and who brings justice and righteousness to the earth and that I delight in these things. I, the Lord, have spoken. My boasting shouldn't be about how much I make, where I live, my number one desire in life shouldn't be about money or power or influence or fame. But our number one desire is that we know God. And coupled with that desire, if we are truly passionate followers of Christ, then as I prayed for you this morning, if we're truly passionate followers of Christ, please hear the heart of the Lord this morning that his desire becomes our desire, that I came to seek and to save that which was lost. God is out there looking and searching and calling and drawing, but he does it through people like you and me. That's his presence. It's why those of you who came forward in the service last night and I laid hands on every one of you and said, Lord, manifest yourself through them. Let lost people be drawn to that powerful, that compelling, that magnetic presence of Christ in us. I don't care if they know the name of Woodland. I don't care if they know my name. I want them to know Jesus. May God make Woodland Church bold expressors of his love. May God befriend our community through Woodland Church in every small group and everywhere this church has an outreach. Can you say amen to that? And may God deliver us from a smug self-satisfaction. We've got food on our tables. We've got 600 channels on our cable TV. We can watch CBN, TBN, and whatever else in is out there that we want to watch. We've got our small group. I've got my retirement. I've got my, I've got my family. Oh, God, you have been good to me. May God deliver us from that. Make us a people who love people like Jesus loved people. Because being a passionate follower of Christ, the root word of passion is to suffer. We are willing to pay the price for what really matters to us. We're willing to pay the price, mamas and daddies, praying for our children daily. We're willing to pay the price for building relationships and marriages that honor God. We're willing to pay the price to reach the lost. We're willing to pay the price because we're passionate. We're not lukewarm. We are committed disciples of Christ. And so I call upon us. Let's take advantage of this series. Next week, I'm going to be speaking about being a friend of God and we're going to take communion together and we're going to look at what Jesus says I no longer call you servants I call you friends 
and we're going to look at a man named Zacchaeus, another one that everybody shunned. But Jesus sought him out to the amazement of everybody. And before I pray for you, I want you to know, when I gave my heart to Jesus, there were some people that were so shocked. I didn't tell my parents to much later. I overheard two women in that little church I grew up in saying, he'll never get saved. He's just a bitter boy. And when I made my testimony to my pastor to give my heart to Jesus, and he told the church, I remember those same two women walking to me and said, you'll never make it. I got to Bible college, the academic dean of our school, who later became a friend. I became a board member of the college. Said to me, you'll never make it. My scholarship counselor said, you'll never make it. I was too introverted. I want to tell you something. When Jesus is your best friend, you can darn well make it. And you can go out of here and say, I said that today. You can darn well make it. I don't care what you're going through. You can make it because Jesus is a friend of sinners. Somebody give me my hand of praise this morning. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Stand with me this morning and let's pray. Hallelujah. Our Father in heaven, we love you. And we want to celebrate your love daily. We want to declare your praises daily. We want to build that wonderful relationship each and every day of telling someone that you say, would you help us? Would you anoint us to become so persuasive, Lord, that other people will want to become passionate followers of Christ? God, help us not to rely on skill or technique, but to rely upon Him who dwells within us, Christ, the Savior of our souls. For it is not by power and it is not by might, but it is by your Spirit, saith the Lord. Hallelujah. Would you agree with me in prayer on that right now? In Jesus' name. Now this morning there were some folks who crossed the line, and maybe you're here today and you did not expect what you just found or heard or been a part of. But it was a plan in the will of God that you be here today. And something in you, you're being compelled to give your heart to Jesus. That's the Holy Spirit. That's God saying, I want to be your friend. And that's God knocking on your door. You don't have to explain it all. You'll never be good enough. I will never be good enough. So why don't you begin by just saying, praying this prayer with me. You pray it quietly and say, Lord Jesus, as much as I know how, I committed to following you. I ask you to be my Savior. Just like it was saying at Christmas time, you came to save us from our sins. As much as I know how, I commit my life to you in Jesus' holy name. And let's everybody say amen together. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Come on, church. Let's bless him. Let's bless him. Let's bless him. Let's bless him. I believe, I believe with all my heart, 2019 is going to be the best year ever because it's the day the Lord has made. Pastor Rick, come and tell him about, if you prayed, Pastor Rick's got a gift he wants to tell you about to help you get started. I want to meet you and, and get to know you. So you come talk to me after the service. I'll be right here at these back doors. God bless you.